Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Jenna Clark Embry, the literary manager and dramaturg at Lincoln Center Theatre in New York City. Jenna develops plays and supports playwrights alongside serving as the executive editor of the Lincoln Center Review. She received her MFA from the American Repertory Theatre Moscow Art Theatre School for advanced theatre training at Harvard University. Jenna is also the mom to a two-year-old named Amelia, who attends a German immersion preschool in New York. Jenna studied German as an adolescent and now is relearning German along with Amelia. We talked about how they utilize the time and place method at home to structure German into their day, and what the experience has been like for Jenna to observe Amelia's language development in both English and German. We also talk about Jenna's experiences studying in Russia during her master's program and how her work as a dramaturg intersects with language and translation. Jenna is a fascinating person and a wonderful human. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. My name is Jenna and I, as a career, I am the literary manager slash dramaturg at Lincoln Center Theater in New York. And uh, my personal life is I share a home with my partner who is also in theater and our little over two-year-old Amelia and a bunch of animals. We have a dog and two cats um, and we live in Brooklyn. What were your language experiences growing up? What languages did you hear spoken around you as a child and young adult? That's a great question. So I, I don't think I really processed having foreign language experiences when I was really little, but I, I technically did. Um, so my stepdad is a uh, organist and choir director. And so I was around a lot of his work growing up and also sang in children's choirs, like professional children's choirs that he directed. And so we actually sang a lot in foreign languages, which were mostly Latin, German, and French. Um, I think maybe I did an occasionally a Spanish song, or I would also like be in rehearsals when he was directing the adult choirs, um, which were also predominantly like German and, and Latin language uh, choral pieces. So I had that exposure a little bit. Uh, and then, but it was really informal and just kind of absorbed, but I remember having like early pronunciation help with some of my foreign languages as a kid for singing. And then um, where it really started happening for me was I was like 11 years old and I found a notebook of my stepdad's that was how to learn Hebrew. And my stepdad as an organist and choir director many decades ago had also been an organist for a synagogue. And so he had like a Hebrew, like basic learn to read Hebrew book. And as my parents tell the story, I taught myself Hebrew, which is not accurate. I think I taught myself the alphabet and like three basic phrases. Um, but it really piqued my interest. And at the time we were living in Tennessee and my the sixth grade that I was in 
was at a private school. It's the only year I ever went to private school. Did like a, you know, a couple weeks in every foreign language in our social studies class. And we got to German and I just really liked it. And I think this is partly because one of my classmates, had, her family had a German shepherd from Germany that her mom was like teaching German commands to. So the dog came in to do a demonstration. So I think I probably was like, oh, this is amazing. Dogs are involved. Um, and then we, during my sixth grade year, uh, we moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is where I spent the rest of my childhood. And when my parents were like looking where to move, what school district to move in, my mom was like, Jenna really likes foreign languages. Let's try to find whatever public school has the best language program. And at the time, I don't think this is still true, Hershey Public Schools, um, like next to the chocolate factory, they started foreign languages in sixth grade. Like you picked your language and you started in sixth grade and went all the way through high school. And so I, they were like, this is where we're going to move so that Jenna can take foreign language classes. And I picked German, which was very, I don't think a lot of public schools have German anymore. And even the one I went to no longer has it. But um, in central Pennsylvania, it's Pennsylvania Dutch country, which is aka Pennsylvania Deutsch. Right. And so there's a ton of German families there. Um, the joke is that the telephone book, the SCH pages for the last names are like 20 percent of the phone book <laughs> or people whose last names begin with sch um and so i started german classes and i took it sixth grade all the way through middle school high school and two years of college and then when i was in high school i also added latin just for fun so i took four years of latin in high school too and then i kind of didn't pick it up again for a really long time i dealt with some language stuff in graduate school, but that was the extent of my childhood language exposure. Wow. So then when you got to the end of high school, how, if you can remember, how did you feel like your level of German was at that point? Yeah, I think I'm, it's, I've been trying to compare what it is now. Like, are they similar? And I think I'm probably not even still back to my German level of high school because I, I mean, it was like AP German and I tested you know, and I got like the highest marks on my AP German exam. So I don't know what the equivalent of that is now, but I felt like I had a good command of the language, whether or not that is accurate. Um, but I loved it and and definitely had the thing, and we can talk about this more later, the thing I had a better command of then than I do now is tenses other than the present tense. Um, and so I used to be able to switch into future tense or past tense really nimbly. And I cannot do that now. It is a lot harder for me, um, to click that part of my brain in. So I felt like I was better speaking German when I was 20 than I am now at 37. Yeah. Did you ever visit Germany as a child or adolescent? No, I didn't go until um, I was in college and I had a friend who was studying abroad in Bremen. And so I went and visited her uh, and we also went to Berlin. And I remember getting off the plane and it being really surreal that this kind of like secret language that I only spoke in, in a classroom setting suddenly applied. And um, so, and it's still to this day, I have, um, especially because I've been late a couple of years later studied abroad. If I'm working on foreign languages a lot, like I have been in the last year, my impulse, like when I'm ordering a coffee or something is suddenly I want to switch into a foreign language because that's when I'm nervous and like I'm practicing it. Um, so I've noticed that I'll say like Danka to the crossing guard <laughs> and things like that. So I, I visited Germany. Yeah. In 2000, I was 20, 
yeah, I was 20, 21. This is the first time that I actually went. That's the only time I've been. That's so interesting that you talk about this secret language that was in the classroom, because I can remember the first time I went to Italy after having studied Italian for a year in college. I went after my freshman year and it was just like, oh, wow, like it's all around me. Like, yeah. I remember feeling like just that excitement of being immersed and everybody speaks this language. And I remember hearing a child like on the street speaking Italian and being like, man, that child speaks Italian better than I ever will. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about your study abroad experiences. Oh, sure. So I studied abroad for, it was only three months um, in graduate school. So gosh, would have been 2011, 2010, 2010. Um, and part of my graduate program was they they sent you to Moscow for three months. And so leading up to, because I went to graduate school in theater, Moscow is a epicenter of theater. Uh, so the year, the kind of the school year leading up to going abroad, you went abroad, you started school in July and you went abroad um, March, April, May. So from July until we left, we our whole class together as a class uh, took Russian. And from what I remember of learning Russian, it, it it never felt, I hope she never hears this, the, the teacher who taught us Russian didn't seem like maybe she had any experience teaching a foreign language. I'm sure that's not true. But every day she, we, it, there was there was not a structure that we could discern how we were learning the language. Um, so we kind of got to Russia with a really um, uh, patchwork, experience of of speaking Russian and my there were act there were 17 actors in my class and then four dramaturgs which is what I am and the dramaturgs we went to theater every single night I think it's something like 70 productions in 90 days all of which of course all of which were in Russian I think one or two of them were actually in Ukrainian um maybe there was a Polish one in there too some visiting productions but so we got a little more exposure that way, but I still don't really speak Russian. I think I can say I like, I speak a little Russian and slowly, and then a couple little conversational phrases. I can still read Cyrillic really well and um, really well, meaning uh, I was the designated like directions person in my class because I could read the signs really well. So whenever we were, and I was also training for my first marathon while I was in Russia. So I would go and run in the morning and then my classmates would be like, where, how do we get to this theater tonight? You know, know the directions because I would have run there in the morning and like scoped it out. Um, So that was my, my study abroad experience. Yeah. Wow. I was talking to some college friends a month or two ago about how we studied abroad in, in 2008 and how different it is now. Like we didn't have Google maps on our phones all the yeah. time, which like yeah. print out directions and <laughs> in a foreign we language. Didn't have, to figure it out. We didn't have phones at all when we went to Russia because none of our phone plans at the time would have worked in Russia. And I think a couple of us tried to get the phones, like would you would buy the phone card with minutes, but basically you would use them up in like 10 minutes and they were very expensive. So for three months, we were just like, I'll meet you here at this time. (laughs) That was it. It was a really, it was a surreal way to live, but it was, nobody got lost. Nobody, nobody got lost that didn't come back. Well, that's good. (laughs) Um, What marathon were you training for when you were there? It was was grandma's marathon. So I did the whole marathon training in Russia and then came back and took it like a camping road trip. Do not recommend before your first marathon (laughs) and then ran grandma's. And to this day, that is my 
my fastest marathon. I never ran a faster marathon. I qualified for Boston and I was living in Boston at the time. So that was the goal was that I would run Boston before I finished graduate school. I ran Boston in 2012 when it was 95 degrees at the start. So that was terrible. Uh. (laughs) Um, But I have a whole, like the training training for a marathon in a foreign language is hilarious. Like the things that were shouted at me on this, on the streets um, in Russia, because running wasn't really a normal thing. I got a lot of um, molodets, which is like, good, you're a good person <laughs> like <laughs> champ kind of thing. Or my favorite one was gold medal. Someone just yelled at me. Gold oh. medal. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I was also recently thinking about, um, like my friend in college who had studied abroad in, I think, St. Petersburg and how I'm sure that program doesn't exist anymore or like right now American students aren't going to study abroad mm-hmm. in Russia and how that's so sad and hopefully yeah. it'll start up again someday. <laughs> my my program, even maybe two years later, um, stopped the Russian component, which is actually where our degree is from. Like I have a diploma because it's this whole thing long story for a different podcast of issuing arts degrees from Harvard. Uh, so my diploma is actually from the Moscow Art Theater. It is in Russian, aka I wow. can't read my whole diploma. <laughs> um, and But they don't do it anymore. They don't send students anymore. Um, or they started not sending students like two years later. And I'm sure that's the case everywhere in for US programs. And sometimes it makes me really, I wonder like when in my life I'll ever go back to Russia. Um, yeah, I really loved it. Yeah, I, I think I was thinking of this in the context of like, will I ever go to Russia? I would love yeah. to visit. I think my maybe great grandparents on my dad's side, at, at least some of them, I think, were from St. Petersburg. So mm-hmm. it'd be cool to visit. It's but beautiful. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometime in my maybe lifetime. Maybe sometime. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Amelia. Before Amelia was born, did you know that you wanted to try to incorporate foreign languages? And I also, I guess, what were your experiences between graduate school and having her as far as foreign languages? Sure. Um, the experience, basically nothing. Like I, I sat down, put down my foreign languages and didn't touch them for close to a decade, um, or actually more than a decade, like 12 years. Uh, so nothing like didn't practice it, didn't read things like, you know, occasionally would see like a wine bottle with a German label on it and would be proud that I could recognize some words in it. Um, so, but when I was expecting Amelia, I thought to myself like, oh, I can get her some German kids books and read to her. And I had one book that I had actually bought when I was in Bremen in 2007, this little kid's book, um, the Bremen City Musicians is what the title is in English, which are these these animals that are out of work, they're too old to work, and then you know things ensue and they become the city musicians of Bremen, like a beloved story in Bremen. Um, so I had this one book and I remember reading after she was born, I remember reading it to her, not really understanding the levels of books for, tiny babies and she just did not pay attention because <laughs> it's a really long book it's actually a very wordy book um so in, in her early days I would read her this one book that we had um but she didn't really she didn't really pick up on it too much at the time um and her but then she got a book given to us by a friend it's a book called not a cat by winter miller have to shout it out because it's her favorite book and the cat in it is named gato 
And so now all cats are gatos to her, no matter what. And that was the first time where I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, the way she assigns words to different things. Um, so that was an early experience with Amelia and languages. Mm -hmm. So how did the decision to send Amelia to a German immersion school come about? Yeah, it, I, I will compare it to, it was absolutely the right decision and we did zero research prior and it turned out to be, if we had researched it, we probably would have come to the same <laughs> conclusion because it was a really great um, idea that I based not at all in reality. Um, I just kind of thought it would be cool, honestly. I was like, that seems neat. And my logic was if she went to a, I just wanted her to have a foreign language experience. And I thought to myself, if she goes to a German preschool, I will at least be able to support her in that process. At the time, I thought it would be so easy for me to speak German with my toddler. And the joke I always make is that I've learned that 10 years of German classes equals the vocabulary of a two-year-old. So she's already <laughs> starting to surpass me. Um, so I Googled, you know, German preschools, Brooklyn, and it turns out that the German preschool Kinderhouse, it's the most magical place, um, was two blocks from the apartment that we had already signed a lease floor for. So that seems like destiny. That's amazing. And yeah. <laughs> um, and so we took a little Zoom tour and I enrolled her immediately. I was like, this is the place. Um, and it's really amazing. And so she didn't really have a ton of German exposure other than me reading that one book. And then when she was not quite 18 months old, she started day German immersion school. Um, and that's how she came to Kinderhouse. It was really just kind of on a whim. And then we realized as time went on that it had been the best decision we could have made for her. That's so cool. So um, what has it been like for you speaking to the parents and teachers? Like, do, is most of the school communication in German or is it kind of bilingual? Most of the the external communications are in English because I would say, this is my estimate, I think most families, a, a typical makeup in the school is that one parent is a native German speaker and the other isn't. Uh, and so all the communications, like the class emails are in English because so many of the parents are English speakers. Um, the teachers obviously get to know which parents don't speak German. Um, so I'm always really excited when some of them like forget and speak to me in German <laughs> as opposed to English. Um, so, but they'll, you know, there'll be German uh, greetings in the emails and German sign-offs and, you know, we'll have, we have a school calendar every month and it always amuses me where some things will be in English and some will be in German and kind of a mishmash and, um, but that they primarily communicate to the, to the parents in English, which is useful. So what has the experience been like for you since she started to reimmerse yourself in German? Have you tried to like speak only in German with some of the parents or, or what has that been like? Yeah, it's been intimidating. <laughs> um, with, with the other parents, you know, sometimes I will, or with the teachers really, when we do drop off, I, um, I will like prepare a sentence. If, if something is going on, like there's, I don't know, something I need to tell them beyond like the basic hello, goodbye, drop off. I would like prepare the sentence in advance in German. Um, and the first time I did this, I think they were bringing in fruit for a fruit salad. And I was going to be like, all right, she has two bananas in her backpack. And I like practiced saying that. And then when I said it, they were like, great. And 
I was, it felt like magic um, that I had prepared this very simple sentence and correctly said it in German. And, and so like little things um, they'll say in German and back and forth to me. And I, I haven't told them this, but my, my goal is that when the start of next school year happens, that I might ask her teachers if they'll try to speak to me in German and I'll try to speak back. That's like my, my goal that I hope can happen. Um, a couple of the parents that we're friends with, um, I will text back and forth in German because it's an easy way for me to practice and everyone's really understanding when I make mistakes. Um, so that's what that has been like. And Amelia, I'll, I'll just say, part of the the accident of how great this is, is uh, for Amelia is that I totally didn't put together prior to enrolling her is Amelia was a real, was a relatively early talker. So she started saying her first words at like eight months old and she has a pretty big vocabulary now. It's just like, this is the area where right now um, she has a lot of strengths. And so I realized that her being able to have another language outlet for her is actually like her form of enrichment that kind of uh, an easy way to get her brain working in other ways you know that we don't have to think about too much is I just know that she gets this language exposure and she has at this point like I can't even count how many words she has in either language and I think that's been really good for her not only for her development but also for her to have this outlet where she can excel and it plays to her strengths is this is, you know, her vocabulary in English versus German. Um, and that was not something that I thought about in a, in a really concentrated or, or preemptive way. And it just turned out that that has been a really great fit for Amelia is to have this other um, form of expression that she can also speak in German. Yeah. So what have you noticed about her language development in the two languages so far? And did she start speaking only in yeah. one or was it kind of words in both when she started speaking? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I remember when her, her teachers told us that she had was starting to speak in in German. And prior to that, I think she just wasn't speaking too much. She's a little bit shy. And then one day she like handed a leaf to her teacher and just goes, Blatt, which is leaf in German. They're like, oh, she's really, she's starting it. And at home, I, I wish I could really remember, you know, certain, just certain phrases she says in German and certain phrases she says in English. So she'll, um, a lot of the beginnings of her sentences are in German. Um, and, but really like she and I both kind of mash up the languages together. And part of that is it goes to the limits of my language ability. So if there's something that I just can't say in German, I will say to her in English, obviously, probably the majority of our communication is in English. But if I can say a sentence in German, I say it to her in German and she'll respond to me also kind of in a mishmash. So um, for example, the other day she was eating pineapple and I just, I used the German word for it, which is ananas. And she looked at me and she goes, nine, das ist pineapple. And it was just the funniest thing. I was like, okay, okay. Like you're not wrong. And so some words she'll be really insistent on using the English word in kind of a funny way to me. And then she'll also, she, but she knows certain words have to certain things have two words for them. Um, so when she saw her teacher today, she was started telling her about her dress in German, whereas at home she, you know, asked to put on a dress in English. And so she kind of switches back and forth in interesting ways. And one of my favorite things to observe in her is how, you know, toddlers make like funny language mistakes. 
And I hadn't really thought about what that looks like in the context of another language. And so despite all best efforts to correct her, Amelia says when she wants to say, I want, she says in German, ich bin, which means I am, even though I try to tell her that she should say like, ich will, I want. So often she will say things like, translated into, into English, she'll be like, I am cheese or I am fruit or whatever. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And she just won't stop doing it. And um, I just, I had never occurred to me that she would make mistakes in another language or the way that she will assemble sentences is also interesting. She said a couple weeks ago, she, she, what did she said? Um, she said, can ich more juice haben, which means can I have more juice, but more juice was in English and the rest of the sentence was in German, but it was in the right structure of a German sentence with like the, the verb at the end. And right. I, I was like, oh, this is so weird and <laughs> so fascinating. And just the way her little brain works is really interesting. And I, you know, some words are just always going to be in one language right now and, and versus the other. So it's a real mishmash. So what are some ways that you're learning and practicing German together? Oh, sure. Um, we, so I try to do with her certain time and place activities. So for instance, when we leave the house to go to school, we switch into just in German and we do a lot of like pointing out cars and colors and bikes and things that we see um, in German. And we do, when I pick her up, it's the same thing. We, we speak only in German. And I think that helps like switch into going to school mode a little bit. And the other thing that I noticed kind of about my own language skills that was really fascinating is um, what came back to me quickly and what didn't. Speaking, I previously spoke about past tense and present tense. I have a lot of like verbs came back to me, but not to the same degree that nouns came back to me. I mean, truly almost anything that I can see around in a daily setting, I know the the word for. And so that's great for toddlers, right? Because you're usually just saying like, look at that, look at that over and over again. Um, and so that's a really, on the walk to school is a really easy way to just kind of get into German mode with her. Um, and then the other thing, I try to do most days unless it's like a chaotic morning is I try to speak German with her as soon as she wakes up um, and just kind of like say like here like German is in our world and introduce that aspect of our language together early on so I'll ask her unless something crazy has happened and we're just like not thinking about it um, but I'll say like how did you sleep did you dream what did you dream about in German um, and she usually just says yes to everything so who knows <laughs> Um, and then the other thing we do that she has really picked up on is I very frequently will use my Apple watch or my phone. Usually it's my watch to ask Siri how to say something in German. And, uh, she, I noticed the other day she asked Siri, she touched my watch and literally said, Siri, bathtub, German. <laughs> and <laughs> I think it's going to activate my Siri now, um, which the word is Badavana. And so then she kept saying Badavana. And I was like, oh, wow, you like understand that we're trans using my watch or your friend Siri who lives in my watch to translate things into German. So that's a really, I love connecting with her in that way of being like, neither of us know this word. Let's figure out what it is. Um, and so that's a little bit of it. She also, I haven't been keeping up on my Duolingo for various reasons, but for a long time, she would want to play it with me and she would ask to play OWL. 
like mama owl. And so we do like little German lessons on Duolingo together too. Oh, fun. That's so cool. You're modeling how you're learning German. Yeah. She's picking up on those ways. And we do it with, with television too. So she watches a lot of German cartoons or um, I actually, she's really obsessed or she it's growing out of it. But for a while she was really obsessed with the, you could watch on YouTube, the old Muzzy cartoon that was like really popular in the nineties, which maybe wasn't actually a great way for kids to learn a foreign language, but we'll watch it just in German. And frankly, like it was a great way for me to learn too. It, it's brilliantly constructed. So we would watch Muzzy a lot together. You know, it's vaguely creepy. There's like a villain in it who she thought was the greatest ever. Um, so we watch a lot of German cartoons um, or things dubbed in German. And the other thing that we do is if if German isn't available in dubbing, um, sometimes it's available as the subtitles. So like, for example, she loves the live action Lyle Lyle Crocodile. It's one of her favorite movies. And they do have the sub, they do have subtitles in German. So I will turn that on, which is a great way for me to learn because they're like short, it's a movie. It's not really, it's a kid's movie. It's not complicated dialogue. And I will repeat as they subtitle it, I'll kind of like repeat what she's watching in German so that she there's that connection too. Mm-hmm. Has your partner tried to learn German at all? And what has the experience for him been like? <laughs> he, has, he has not, um, he has not dedicated himself to the study of German, <laughs> but he's like absorbed a ton of, it's actually kind of interesting to see how much he's absorbed on his own. Um, and he doesn't have any, he didn't like learn a language in school or have any exposure that way. Um, so it's kind of an all new thing for him. Um, but like he knows all the colors in German or, Gosh, you know, he has some very, he definitely knows what like airplane and helicopter is because she's really obsessed with airplanes and helicopters. So helicopter is hubschrauber. So when he will point out the hubschrauber whenever <laughs> we see them. So he's kind of just absorbed her primary words, which is great. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that she, um, I didn't realize this for the longest time because she would only ever say airplane in, in English. And then she had a t-shirt with an airplane on it. And when she got to school, she showed her teacher and she went flugzeug and I was like oh you do know it in German that's fascinating yeah You've been holding out on me yeah. that's really cool okay let's talk a little bit about your work as a dramaturg okay. what does a dramaturg do <laughs> <laughs> it's the eternal question um so the textbook definition of a dramaturg is it is the person who is the expert in the theory and practice of dramatic structure so other than that the way i typically explain it is it's similar to being like a book editor for plays um or i serve as the other eye between a playwright and a director so i'm like the third person arguably the more objective person than the, either of those two roles um, and so I'm just there to like support the structural development of uh, a play or a musical. Um, so a typical thing I might say is, you know, I watch a run through of a show in development and I'll say something like, we need a song here to establish this part of the action or establish this relationship or this experience between two characters. So that's like a common thing um, that I might say in practice. Um, when it come, when I'm working on an older play when I'm working on a revival it is typically more um, kind of like dissecting the structure along with the team Um, oftentimes when you're doing an older production if it's a classical work obviously the writer isn't with you so I kind of serve as that um, 
that knowledge base. So, um, you know, if I'm working on an Edward Albee play, I'll reference something that happens in one of his other plays or an example and kind of working on the, the common language of the room. Another aspect of dramaturgy is research, like the nitty gritty, what happened when, what does this mean? Um, and that's like 2% of our job. And everyone thinks it's all of our job. <laughs> so if you ask a lot of actors what a dramaturg does, they will be like, they're the person who gives me a research packet. And that's just a really small part. Um, I joke that the comparison is saying a dramaturg is the person who does research is like saying a dentist is the person who gives you a free toothbrush. Like it's not <laughs> wrong, but it's just a small aspect of what we do. Um, so that's what a dramaturg does. And I'll also say, coincidentally, dramaturgy was invented in Germany. Um, and it's one dramaturg in Russian, the word dramaturg means playwright. And there's another word for dramaturg, but dramaturg in German is like a real thing. And every German theater has them. And it was invented in the like mid 1700s, 1700s um, at, the, at the theater in Hamburg. And it's really, it's a really like a beloved part. Beloved might not be the right word. Sometimes people don't like dramaturgs, but it's an integral part of the German theater system is a dramaturg and they function much in the way that I just described, um, which is uh, working on on productions intimately with directors and, and writers. And I'll note whenever I've seen a German production, when they tour over here, the dramaturg is always really prominently credited in a way that they aren't in the United <laughs> States. So it's really interesting. Wow, that is interesting. Um, how, so how did you find out about this as a career path? Because like, I was telling you, I went to a performing arts middle and high school in Manhattan. Like I was surrounded by theater. And, you know, when I went to college, I had pretty much decided I wasn't going to pursue like acting as a career. I didn't want to do that. And I'm sure that I had heard the word dramaturg, if nothing else, as a teenager. And I think that that could have been something that I would have found really interesting because it's very like academic and intellectual. And I mean, I often say that preschool teachers especially are like actors in many ways. So I don't think I've completely left that world behind. But how did you find out about this as a career path? Sure. I was lucky in the sense that I, I went to Dickinson College, which is in Pennsylvania. And one of my classmates knew what a dramaturg was already. And she really wanted to be a dramaturg. And I was like, what is that? And I learned more about it. And one of my professors in undergrad was also a dramaturg by trade, by trade, um, by career path. And so all of the productions that we worked on had that role in it. And you could like sign up for these. And this this story also involves German in some way. Um, my classmate who was like really passionate about her career path as a dramaturg usually filled that role um, on these productions. And then our junior year, she was studying abroad. And so I got the I was like, I'll, I'll dramaturg while she's abroad. And it was um, the play, The Visit, which is by Friedrich Dürrenmatt, who's a Swiss um, writer. And so the play is written in German. And I was like, oh, I, I can work on this. And so I brought a lot of like my German skills to that first production uh, that I worked on. And I didn't, you know, there was a couple gaps after college where I wasn't sure what I was going to do as a career path um, or how I was going to use it. And then I decided I took like a two year break from theater and then I decided to go to graduate school for dramaturgy. So my MFA is in dramaturgy. And then I started working thereafter. So I, I'm just lucky that people knew what a dramaturg was and in my college experience and could kind of funnel me towards there. I also had um, 
I was a double major in theater and English and my English professors who taught dramatic literature were really, really good. Um, And so I don't think I would have funneled into the career path of dramaturg had I not had these amazing professors who really taught plays really well on that level. What is usually the balance between new and old pieces that you work on? And do you have a preference? Oh, sure. Um, I don't have a preference. They both, I love both things about them. Um, you know, there is the, when you're working on an old piece there, you're not rewriting it. So sometimes new pages can be really stressful, just kind of on an administrative level of printing and getting new scripts into your binders. There's like a lot of stuff that comes with new play development that can be a little stressful, even if it's exciting. Um, and in the course of a season, it, it really just depends. And this has always been my experience of most most professional theaters in America. Um, some, some theaters obviously have the mission just to do new work. There are plenty of them in New York and nationwide that that is, that is what they do. Um, and there's plenty of theaters that only do classic works. And so if, when you're one of those theaters, like Lincoln Center, or like my previous theater, um, where you do a mix of new and old, deciding what you do during the course of the year is honestly um, kind of a little bit of a game of like season planning whack-a-mole with who has a new play written (laughs) and you know you uh, there's you don't know when a new play is going to be finished and I have seen playwrights finish their plays much faster than anticipated and then you want to get that new play on stage and get it the development that it wants um and i've seen playwrights take longer than anticipated um or plays that you are on track and then at the last minute they aren't ready and so then you have to kind of like slot in revivals (laughs) to fill those holes a little bit and so it's just a constant like game of trying to figure out the mix so on any given year it could be a totally different number i i once had a season um years ago where we were planning on having five of our six shows be world premieres and then none of those plays happened like we're ready so we had one new play and five revivals so it just it changes every year um at what stage of a new play do you come in like do you come in and work on it before it's finished oh sure yeah um yes and it kind of depends on how the play comes to us so if there is a play that we have commissioned ourselves meaning we have given the writer money to go off and write a brand new play for us then I would be involved kind of in its very very earliest stages um, of first drafts and um, hearing that read out loud sometimes the other way that new plays come to me is that uh, an agent agents approach me and say so-and-so is working on a new pay a play and, and so I'll read it maybe a little bit further in development maybe they've had a reading elsewhere at another theater or there are a lot of developmental programs in the United States that just do like readings um, for playwrights and so that's a little bit later in the process I'll say I've never you know there you're always when it's a world premiere you're always working on it in rehearsal and making changes or the play that I just worked on has had two productions and we still probably had 60, 70 new pages throughout the production of the rehearsal process. So I think unless it's a really, really tried and true, done, published play, we're always kind of working on it in the room as well. So does your work ever involve anything having to do with languages, dialects, accents, that sort of thing? Um, That's a great question. And I'll say, so it doesn't really have to do anything with dialects and accents. So that is the the domain of voice and dialect coaches who have a very specific training and are masters. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of dramaturgy involved with that. Like they, those 
those experts know exactly what language languages folks would be speaking, what accents they would be working with, what dialects and so forth. And so that's their domain. Where where languages do intersect with my work is it is very common for dramaturgs to be the one who works on new translations of plays. And that can be in a couple different capacities. So it might be that the dramaturg is the translator themselves. If they have a, a fantastic command of a foreign language, they might be the one from soup to nuts doing the whole translation that you then see on stage. Um, it also might be that the dramaturg who has um, maybe not a complete fluency in a language, but a high enough level would work with a translator, someone who's preparing a literal translation. And then the dramaturg would be working with a, a writer, usually a play, like in our case, like an English speaking playwright to transform the literal translation into something that we would be putting on stage. Um, so that is, and for me, who I am not foreign, in a, or foreign, I am not fluent in a foreign language, that is primarily how I would serve. So I have enough command of German and enough command of Russian that I can give some feedback on things or know how to even just know how to navigate um, certain aspects of that translation. So that's a lot where dramaturgs fall in with translations. Uh, I'll say it is standard practice that it, that in order to be admitted to a graduate program in dramaturgy, you have to have some knowledge base of usually at least two foreign languages. So I think, I think technically mine were German and Latin uh, when I went to school. And as part of that, I had to translate a whole play um, when I was in graduate school. Wow. So I, I did a play in German. I would be, I don't even think I have a copy of it anymore because it's four hard drives and five laptops ago. Um, but I would be very uh, interested to see how I translated. So you translated a German play into English or an English yeah. play into German? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I translated a German play into English. It was, um, they, it's a play by Schnitzler that they actually usually refer to in the French um, title, which is La Ronde. It's a play with all these interconnected scenes um trying to remember what it is in german the title of it um but i translated it into english but you know the thing we often say in the practice of dramaturgy with translation is every translation is also an adaptation and so there's no such thing as a literal translation even though i just mm. use the phrase literal translation you know there is there is no way of translating something for stage purposes that is going to be exactly what it was in the original language. And so when we're working on an ad a translation, we have to know and be open to the fact that something is going to transform when it makes its way to stage and that it's never going to be a wholly representative experience of what it is in its original language. They just can't be. Yeah, that's so interesting. Have you heard, do you know Jhumpa Lahiri, the author? Mm -hmm. She just wrote, um, well, it, she just published maybe a year ago, a collection of essays. And I think some of them have been published in other places before. So they're not all new, but it's called Translating Myself and Others. And it's all mm -hmm. about the art of translation and what oh, interesting. that's like for translators and trying to like, you know, extract the essence of mm -hmm. what it is they're translating. Yeah, it was very interesting. Oh, that's so interesting. I'll look that up. So what projects are you working on next, if you can share? And do you have any influence on what projects you bring to Lincoln Center? Um, yes, 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 and yes, and sort of. Um, I do. I, I, a huge part of my job is season planning. So I collaborate with my amazing boss, Andre, on um, what we're going to program in our spaces. And so I, <laughs> I wish you could see my desk because it 
would give away what I'm working on um, <laughs> right away. Um, I can't I can't discuss what we're doing next, but I will say it does involve translation. So that's oh, been a okay. really fascinating. I am not the translator, but I'm working with um, the the writers and the person who's going to prepare a literal translation. Uh, so I've been able to bring, bring that back, um, into my life in a really interesting way. Um, but so yeah, that's, and, and actually a little bit, our next show is announced, we're, we're doing a, a new musical called the gardens of Annuncia, which is about inspired by the life of the choreographer Graciela Danielle, who is Argentinian. And so it's about her childhood in Argentina under the Peron. So I've also, um, been, steeped in there's a lot of like Spanish terms both in the show and in my research around it so I've been I've been focused on that and um uh our copy editor was wonderful enough to like send me notes back on many things that I had missed accent marks on (laughs) so that is the at the the forefront of my mind right now so what would be your dream show to work on maybe a revival I guess if you or or something new oh sure um, that's a really great question. I mean, I have, I have many plays that are, um, on my like dream list, some of which are not actually feasible to ever do because they're crazy. Um, I, there is a play by Anna Devere Smith, um, who folks are familiar with her work. She does a lot of documentary theater where she's interviewed people and then she will embody each of these characters and in interviews. And most folks know her two most famous plays in that um, style are uh, Fires in the Mirror about the Crown Heights riots in the 1990s and Twilight Los Angeles about the Los Angeles riots. Um, and she has another play called House Arrest, which she wrote in the 90s, kind of shortly after the Clinton admir- administration. And the play is about the cult of the celebrity president, as she describes it. And it's all of the, it opens with like George Stephanopoulos talking about like, why do we make presidents into celebrities? And I really want to revive that play. <laughs> been gunning for it for a while hasn't taken yet at either of the theaters I've worked at but it, so that's free season planning for anyone who listens to this if you work in professional theater <laughs> please do this play um so that's been on my list I also am desperate to do another production of the play The Visit which was that first play that I dramaturged in German it's um what is it uh I might be getting one of those articles wrong, but it's, it's literally the visit of the old lady. And they did a musical version a couple of years ago uh, with Cheetah Rivera that my partner actually worked on before we met. Um, and he would tell me about like the little differences in it. And I'd be like, that's not in the original German or something. <laughs> um, so I would really love to revisit that play. It's, it's an incredible play. And I would love to revisit it with now 15 plus years of professional experience under my belt. Um, there is also, I'm a huge fan of, uh, Irish theater. And so there's an Irish playwright, Marina Carr, who has not been produced enough in the United States, who I, I really hope, um, at some point we'll get to have more of her work over here. So that's also been on my list of dream productions. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I could go on. This could be a whole like hour long conversation (laughs) about like dream plays. Yeah. And maybe once um, the play that you can't discuss yet is (laughs) up or is complete, maybe we can have a second follow-up episode um, with one or more of the writers and translators. It would be really cool to have like a round table discussion type thing. Mm -hmm. That would be really neat. We could make that happen. (laughs) 
my last question for you is back to Amelia and learning German with her. <laughs> so she just turned two. So you've been in it for two years. What advice would you give to someone interested in learning or relearning a language with their child? Yeah. So, um, where do I start with that? And I'll say, it's really funny. It, it made me remind myself that in an early like parent teacher conference, uh, her teachers asked if either me or my partner was German because Amelia has a pretty German first name and a very, very German last name. And both of us were like, oh no. And then we stopped and we're like, oh, wait, wait, actually, yes. Like our, both of our families immigrated from Germany like several generations back. And um, actually my partner, his, his relatives immigrated much more recently than mine did. And so that's been like an interesting thing of feeling, um, I, I think anybody who has, who is in our position of like learning a language that maybe isn't is farther generations back, there is a certain level of like ownership that I didn't feel like I had over it of being like, do I have the right to learn this language with my child? And then kind of had to reclaim like, oh yes, I do. Like I have, I, I have the total right to be learning this with my kid. And, but I'll say um, I have gotten better about my fear about making mistakes with her and both like, yes, I want her to learn proper German, but I had a, a real light bulb moment where I was watching an episode of uh, the most recent se season of Top Chef, which was World All-Stars. And, you know, they had, folks were speaking in accented English, so they subtitled a lot of it or all of it. And I think it was a French chef. I can't remember the exact word, but it was something that was very, very similar, like two words that were really similar. Like maybe he said convection instead of confection or vice versa. And I didn't, you know, I thought nothing of it, right? Like he made this little mistake. I didn't, I wasn't confused about the whole sentence that he said, didn't think anything of it. And that was the moment where I was like, it's okay to make some mistakes. And, and that if I mess up one word, folks aren't, my child or her teachers aren't going to not understand the whole of what I'm saying. Um, just the other day, I noticed someone on the subway um, writing out practice English sentences. And I think the, the assignment was, I was kind of like standing behind him, uh, was to, he had example sentences in English, and I think we was trying to add in like not into the sentence. So it was working with do not or does not, depending on what the subject was. And I noticed he made one mistake. You know, he'd done all these sentences perfectly. And one of them, I think it was like the clock. He said, the clock don't do something. And he didn't conjugate the verb exactly right. But I knew what I knew what the sentence was. <laughs> and so it's like, it's okay to make mistakes. And um I also had a real, it's a really interesting experience with literacy in general, because, you know, I rent German books for her every month, because um, they're kind of hard to find. So I've, and then I'll, I rent them from this program called Kinder Books. And I have tasked myself with like translating her books for myself every night, because not every night, once I get them, um, because I realized like I could read them and I understand what they're saying based on context, but I actually don't know how they were constructing the sentence, right? And I was listening to a podcast, it was an episode of The Daily a couple of weeks ago, where they're talking about how they're phasing out font or phasing out balanced literacy in New York City schools and going back to phonics. And when they were describing, I was kind of familiar with this, but when they were describing it, I had another light bulb moment of realizing that a lot of my German exposure right now, I had just been using context clues. Like um, you know, my phone is in German now. And sometimes it's easy to just 
correctly guess what something is without really committing it to memory or learning it. So I've really tried to keep myself accountable for, you know, I was pretty sure that I knew that Lurchin was like delete on my phone, but I was like, let me look this up and make sure I actually know what it is. Or when I'm reading her books, I can figure out what something is based on context, but I actually need to go back and be like, do I really know what that verb means? Or do I really know how they're structuring this sentence? Um, and so those little things I think really add up of kind of both account accountability to get things right when you can, but letting yourself go when you're making mistakes too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. Do you have any idea of um, when she graduates from kinder house, what it will look like when she's in elementary school? I don't know. I don't I know. Mean, it's, it's a few years off. You don't need to know. <laughs> totally. And I, the, I think the thing that I told myself is I don't know what kind of a five-year-old she will be. So we'll kind of cross that bridge when we come to it. There is a German school in Brooklyn, the German school of Brooklyn. And part of me is like, oh, maybe it would be cool to send her there. But that's a whole like private school versus public school conversation. I do know that if she goes to public school, I'll try to figure out ways like if it's getting a German tutor or something ways that we can keep it up because it's been so exciting and so neat to have it. And I don't want her to lose her language skills. I had a, I had a friend, a dad friend of mine, a playwright dad friend of mine, we were talking about public versus private schools and I was, you know, the costs and so forth. And he was like, if you send her to public school, you can just go to Germany, but I'm like, to save that money. I mean, that's Germany. a great point. <laughs> I was yeah. like, you have a, you have a really good point. Um, so we'll see. Um, it'll, it'll depend when we get there, but I'm kind of excited by the, you know, it'd be neat for her to go to German school still, but we'll cross that bridge in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, this has nothing to do with languages or dramaturgy, but my last question for you is, I remember you had a very, very, very long run streak where you were running every single day. Um, What is the longest, which like, I don't even run seven days a week ever. So very, I'm always very impressed with that. So what was the longest your streak ever was? And what is it now? Uh, I don't know. My streak right now is at like, seven days like I'm not streaking right okay. now <laughs> at all because it's impossible to do when I have a small child and my partner travels a lot one day I will get back to it um that my streak uh was a little over seven years oh of gosh. doing at least a mile a day um and it ended with um not quite half a mile um when I went into labor with Amelia in the middle of the mile <laughs> Oh my God. So I have, um, I have like my Garmin screenshot (laughs) from when I stopped my watch and it's like, I think it's like 0.54 of a mile. Maybe it's around that. And, um, I love this screenshot because it shows that I stopped running at 137 PM and Amelia was born at 555 PM. Oh my God. (laughs) So did you never get sick in those seven years? (laughs) Oh no, I totally did. I ran hungover. I ran with an injured foot one time and I definitely ran sick. Um, but on those days I would just run a mile and like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes, 11 minutes was enough that I could get it out. And you know, like one time I threw out my back and I just kind of hobbled for like two weeks doing, (laughs) you know, what maybe you would call a, a mile run. It was maybe like a mile hobble, but, um, so Yeah. And the worst, I mean, the worst weeks ever were the week after a marathon having to still do the mile. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. That is quite a story. Great reason to break your streak. Yeah. (laughs) Going into labor. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> and how many marathons have you done? Um, nine. My last one wow. was in 2019. Um, so I'm, I don't know that next year is gonna. I really would love to run a half this year in the fall because I really haven't been running a ton since Amelia was born. Um, but maybe next year will be my marathon year and get back to it. Number 10. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to say or that you thought of before we end? I'll say, you know, along with Amelia, my, my goal with Amelia and her German skills is I've been working on right now, my, the A1 uh, foreign language certification in German, which I think is a pretty common, they use it all around Europe for foreign languages. And I've been kind of breezing through the A1 and like, I'll take the test in September, but it goes up to C2. It's like A1, A2, B1, B2. And so my goal is to try to get to the C2 level by the time she graduates Kinderhouse. That's my goal if I could do it. So I'm trying to keep myself accountable with her learning skill. How that will equate with her own skills when she's five, who knows, but we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, I bet she's going to be teaching you a lot as she starts talking more and she'll be... Yeah. yeah, she already has taught me. There was one day where she was at school. She was holding, she got to school with a little rock in her hand and she um, held it up and said something to her teacher and her teacher responded to her. And I was like, wait, what did she say? And she was saying, Guck mal, which is look here. And it's kind of like a colloquial way of saying it. Or actually it's a little more formal than colloquial, but it's not something I was ever taught in school. And so now I know how to say it. So she has already taught me many phrases in German. It's pretty funny. Oh, that's really cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was so fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for having with me. Yeah, this is great, Gabby. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to part two. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It'll be great. I can't wait. Thanks again to Jenna for joining me for this conversation. You can follow along with Jenna's work on the Lincoln Center Theatre Instagram at LC Theatre. And you can follow Amelia's German Immersion Preschool on Instagram at Kinderhouse underscore Brooklyn. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.